Amen. Welcome with me, Dr. Michael Brown. Praise God. What a joy to be with all of you. Uh, you know, we've known each other, Bob, Scott, and I, as mentioned, for many years now. I still think it's a little bit nasty, though, Scott. To, ever since Bob got his Bentley, he's been picking on him for it. So, <laughs> hey, on, on the way out uh, at our table, just grab one of these cards. Use it as a bookmark, all right? And you want to hold that up? Wait, hang on. Let's do one for the critics. There you go. Uh, yeah, just grab one of these. Use it as a bookmark, but it'll, it's got a link to our website on it, askdrbrown.org, and we've got uh, well over, uh, probably over 1,500 videos, over 1,500 articles, uh, tons of material, thousands of hours of radio programs, hundreds of sermons, so all free resources for you. So take advantage of that. I was going to show a video tonight, but since we've worshipped for a while and had some announcements, let me just tell you uh, where to watch this. You may want to jot this down, all right? Uh, but it's askdrbrown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org, and then whatever that slash is, backslash, uh, forward slash, forward slash. Are you taking a picture of me slashing? Is that? <laughs> okay. If you go to Jeremiah's Facebook page, you'll notice there's a picture there that I commented on. It was, well, it's during the message that Bob spoke this morning, and he's looking up. So I, I captioned it, Bob is describing what the UFO looked like. Um, so I encourage you to go there and add captions. There's one where Scott is correcting me, and I'm not happy with it, That's a, but I didn't caption that one yet, though. All right, so askdrbrown.org forward slash consider this, all right? And you'll see a bunch of videos we've put out. Uh, they're animated videos. They're terrifically uh, put together. And there's one, how did the church get cut off from its Jewish roots? You'll see all the videos there, the first seven we've put out. Make sure you watch that one. So it's askdrbrown.org forward slash consider this. How did the church get cut off from its Jewish roots? You'll find it to be a real eye-opener. Uh, how many were here this morning? All right, great. Just a reminder again, get the book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. It will give you a burden for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It will shock you in terms of church history, and it will give you great hope in terms of God's eternal purposes for Israel. And the other book we brought with us, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, Professor Ke Craig Keener and myself, and you'll find that whether you agree with us or not, you'll get tremendous vision for what the second coming is about and great hope and courage to be an overcomer. I promised you that uh, tonight's message <coughs> would be faith-building and one of encouragement, and it will be. I, I need to share something very serious first, and then the rest of the message will be serious, but faith-building and encouraging. I don't know if you heard, but there was a, another synagogue shooting today. Uh, six months to the day from the last one, it was uh, in Poway, California. That's right in the San Diego area. And it was during, uh, this is the last day of Passover, so uh, many Jews in the synagogue there. And it's, it's Chabad, which is ultra-Orthodox Jews. I've interacted with them regularly since 1973. We're at theologically at odds. 
but I've got some folks that are Chabad, they're actually dear friends. That, I mean, we, we interact all the time in a, against each other, but we know them well, so I, I immediately sent a note to one of the rabbis that I know just expressing my grief, but uh, one woman was killed, three were injured, the shooter apparently a 19-year-old, and um, it was you know, a, a Jewish hate crime. And when you know our history and what's happened in different nations, these things have even more impact you know, it'd be like if, if, if a black American was lynched today. That's not an isolated thing. You see it in the context of our, of our history, and it brings up all the bad memories, and you wonder what could be coming next. And I, I mentioned this morning that I see a rising tide of anti-Semitism in America and among professing Christians more intense than anything I've seen in my lifetime. And it does not take much for this to explode into violence. So what I want you to understand is this, that the, ultimately the only thing that's going to stand between attacks, uh, uh, ugly attacks reaching the Jewish people, the only thing that's going to stand between the attacker and the Jewish people is you. That's bottom line. It's going to be Christians standing with the Jewish people, Christians standing for Israel. I was at a, a service years ago there was an African-American church that had a special calling to pray for Israel and bless the Jewish people, and they were out of their building and needed to rent a building, and God spoke to them to contact a rabbi at a synagogue, and for years, years, they shared the building. It was the most unusual relationship. An entirely African-American church would hold their Sunday services there, like a midweek service, and the, the synagogue would do its thing. And every so often, they had joint meetings. They actually had joint meetings. And <coughs> I, I saw a video of this meeting, and here the pastor gets up and tells these Jewish people, we are willing to die for you. And, and you know, here there are Christians, African-American Christians, we are willing to die for you. It was, it was quite remarkable, quite remarkable. When I would speak for them, they would make sure that any literature announcing my presence was immediately removed because we knew that would create trouble for them to have, you know, the, this Jewish missionary in their midst. Uh, but it was a remarkable thing. And, and what I share with you tonight will be encouraging. And, and we'll talk about our call as followers of Jesus. And in particular, all of you as Gentile Christians, you're calling to stand with Israel. But it's a reminder, these are serious times. These are serious times. And here, just to give you an idea of sentiments out there, uh, I, I saw this post on our YouTube channel. Uh, Paul the Apostle and the first Christians were not Jews. They were Christians. And then he goes on with some other stuff. You, Dr. Brown, are not Christian. You are still a Jew, therefore not with us. The Protocols of Zion, which is a notorious anti-Semitic document, that is still widely circulated. It's over 100 years old, but widely circulated and believed today full of lies, but known to just be a forgery. He says the protocols of Zion might be a forgery, but it does not mean what it says is not true. Unless you get baptized, which of course I was 47 years ago, unless you get baptized and become Christian, you will be part of the enemies of the whole human race. In other words, the Jews are the enemies of the whole human race. And if you say that you are a Jewish believer in Jesus, then you are not a follower of Jesus, and therefore you are an enemy of the whole human race. And some of these folks have made things very clear. We've got to deal with the Jewish problem. 
Something's gonna, something has to happen. The Jews must be dealt with. It wasn't that long ago, just a few weeks back, that Louis Farrakhan made the comment, I'm not anti-Semite, I'm anti-termite. Likening Jews to termites, just like the Nazis liken Jews to parasites. What do you do with parasites and termites? You destroy them, you exterminate them, you get rid of them. So the stakes are high, friends. The stakes are very high. Uh, I have taken for granted for 47 years the tremendous love that born-again believers have for Israel and the Jewish people. I shouldn't say take it for granted, but I've known that it is the norm as I've traveled around the world, but it has not been the norm through church history. It has often been the opposite among professing followers of Jesus, and I'm seeing increasingly the rising tide of anti-Semitism within the church. So by all means, read Our Hands Are Stained With Blood and take in everything in this conference with the utmost seriousness. I said this last thing. There is an organization. Uh, what was Rabbi Eckstein's, the name of it? Fellowship of Christians and Jews, led by the late Rabbi Yechiel Eckstein. Now I believe his daughter will be taking over. And they raised, over the years, well over a billion dollars to help needy Jews coming back to Israel, refugees, elderly Jews in need and things like that. And Rabbi Eckstein would be endorsed on Christian TV, would be endorsed by, by many leading pastors. And, and most Christians watching thought he was a Jewish believer in Jesus. He's not, he's an Orthodox Jew. He was not a Jewish believer in Jesus and was very upset with Jews who did believe in Jesus. He did a great work in terms of raising a lot of money to help a lot of Jewish people in the land. He did that. It's not like it was a scam and the money all went in his pocket. But when he, he passed away recently, a colleague of mine was at the funeral and said, you know the thing that was the saddest thing? There was not one mention at the funeral of all the money that Christians gave and that they were the ones that made his organization what it was. And then he said to me, he said, the saddest thing is that 90% of the Jews who received help never knew it came from Christians. You think about what a powerful tool that would have been to undo so many years of, of anti-Semitism through the church. The good news is that God's raised up Scott and others, but Scott, the one I'm closest to that I'm seeing this supernatural favor on, and, and when he goes into Israel, are you going to show the videos tomorrow in service? Yeah. Well, when he goes into Israel and, and they, they rebuild and rehabilitate a, 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 a children's playground and, and facilities for needy children in Israel, and the things run down and, and money's raised like at a conference like this, and they go there and maybe spend $150,000, $200,000 renovating the whole thing. Then they do it, and the chief rabbi comes, and the mayor comes, and Scott says, this is done with the help of Christians from around the world who love Israel. So that's, that's the witness. That's the power of that witness. And, and it goes a long way to removing uh, the, the ugliness of history. Amen? And you're going to make a big difference in the days ahead when Jew hatred rises and you stand for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, let's pray. Abba, we love you. I ask you to give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start in Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. The prophet speaking 
inspired by the Lord, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, my delight is in her, and your land Beulah, married, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man who marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, or literally in Hebrew, you who put the Lord in remembrance, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. What an extraordinary calling. Give yourselves no rest and give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem as the praise of the earth. And this will be to the good of the nations. The nations will bask in Israel's light. The nations will be blessed by the favor that God bestows on Israel. And that's why in Romans 11, Paul urges the Gentile believers to whom he writes, saying, I'm writing to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry. I want to save some of my people now, but my goal is through you, Gentile believers, coming to faith that you will provoke Israel to jealousy, that Israel will see what you have and, and, and want it. And say, you're enjoying the covenant blessings. You're enjoying the favor of God. You're enjoying intimacy. You're enjoying the presence of God. You're enjoying his glory. You're enjoying forgiveness of sins. That's our heritage. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but you have something and you don't value it that much until someone else gets what you used to have. Suddenly you miss it. Suddenly you value it. Suddenly you're jealous for it. And Paul explains in Romans 11 that, that if Israel's rejection brought God's blessing to the entire world, what will Israel's acceptance be but life from the dead? And we can understand that on two levels, that as more and more Jewish people come to faith, that it's going to have a profound effect on the church and bring spiritual life and renewal. But the ultimate application is that if Israel's rejection got things, if Israel's rejection produced what it's produced around the world, the salvation of hundreds of millions of people, Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and terrorists and people from every walk of life coming to faith in Jesus, blind eyes being opened, every kind of sickness being healed, every type of divine encounter and transformation. If that's what happened when Israel got things wrong, what happens when Israel gets things right? Literally, life from the dead, resurrection, the Messiah's return, death conquered. These are big things. But it cannot happen through Israel's work alone and through a few people reaching out. This is the massive end-time battle. In 
the spring of 1983, I found myself in tremendous prayer one day, deeply burdened. I, I didn't know what I was praying for. <laughs> it was in April of 83, April, May of 83. I was in travail. I was literally on the floor in my study, doubled over, groaning and crying, and I didn't know why. And, and when I was done, it was so intense. I said, Lord, what was that about? And I heard the Spirit say to me, Muslim strongholds in South Africa. I thought, oh, yeah, right, sure. Here I am in New York, right near Kennedy Airport on Long Island. Here I am groaning and travailing. Oh, yeah, sure, for Muslim strongholds in South Africa. That makes a lot of sense. And then I also questioned myself because I'm thinking Islam is strong in North Africa, like Sudan and Egypt and countries like that, not South Africa. I'm thinking it doesn't even make sense, but it was so real, I remembered it. A little over a year later, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at a meeting there, thousands of people, and who speaks but Reinhard Bonnke? In his early 40s, full of fire, full of faith, and he begins to tell the story of what happened. These amazing meetings in Johannesburg, South Africa, last year. And he begins to say that they were setting up their tent. It was the world's largest tent. It, it, I don't know how many massive trucks it took to move it. I think seven. 34,000 square feet. The world's largest tent. No, no, it, or it seated 34,000. That's it. It seated 34,000. This massive, massive structure. And he said when we were setting up the tent because it was the rainy season that was coming, so you couldn't have the, the meetings, public outside meetings, without the tent. And this is before Bonke was speaking to crowds of over a million. He said that the local witch doctors came to him and said, we don't want your meetings here. And he said local Muslim leaders came and said, we don't want your meetings here. He said, and we're putting a curse on your tent. And not long after that, a tremendous wind swept through and ripped the tent up into little pieces. He said it looked like they were defeated. Then they started getting reports of people for several miles around finding these, <coughs> this blue tent material in their yards and near their houses, and they picked it up, and they were putting it on people who were sick and demonized, and they were getting set free and healed. That was the first thing. <laughs> then the next thing is, is that another storm came, and it, it blew the roof off the mosque, that was the second thing. And then Bonke felt, go on with the meetings. And as he's describing this, I don't remember the exact dates now because this was many years ago, but I remember the, the time it was then. He's describing all this and saying, we decided to go on and have the meetings outside anyway, even though it was the rainy season. And years later, I got to know Suzette, Suzette Hatting, who for years was his lead intercessor, and she told me, oh, it was unreal. We saw the storm coming. It would come right up and stop right where we were holding our meetings. She said it was supernatural and unreal. But they decided to go ahead with the meetings. And they ended up with crowds of 80 or 90,000, which would not have fit under the 34,000-seat tent. And he said in the greatest miracle of all, in response to the signs and wonders, he said thousands of Muslims got saved. 
in Johannesburg, South Africa. And, and I realized, wait, wait, wait. This must have been a moment when God, God was doing this. And, and it, it was a big project. It was a big battle. It was a big war. So God just got hold of a bunch of intercessors all around the world and, and zapped us with that same burden. It was quite amazing. What I'm saying is the salvation of Israel is going to take a mobilized, spirit-filled, Jesus-loving church to get moved on in intercession that pushes things through so that Israel turns and gets saved. This is going to be the last great battle. And it's going to take the body, fullness of the Gentiles, a massive harvest full of the Spirit, praying for Israel and provoking Israel to envy. In my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, there's a lot of painful reading and then words of promise at the end. But through the years, there have been great Christian leaders who had a profound love for Israel and recognized the importance of God's promises to Israel. The greatest of the Puritan theologians in the 1600s, John Owen, wrote this. The Jews shall be scattered from all parts of the earth where they are scattered. Excuse me, the Jews shall be gathered from all parts of the earth where they are scattered and brought home into their homeland. This is in the 1600s. He said this, There is not any promise anywhere of raising up a kingdom unto the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, but it is either expressed or clearly intimated that the beginning of it must be with the Jews. His contemporary Robert Layton said this, they forget a main point for the church's glory who do not daily pray for the turning of the Jews. Undoubtedly, that people of the Jews shall once more be commanded to arise and shine, and their return shall be the riches of the Gentiles, and that shall be a more glorious time than ever the church did yet behold. Samuel Rutherford, considered to be one of the most spiritual of the Puritans, said this, I could stay out of heaven many years to see that victorious, triumphing Lord act that prophesied part of his soul-conquering love and in taking into his kingdom the greater sister, the church of the Jews. Oh, what joy and what glory I would judge it if my heaven should be suspended till I might have leave to run on foot to be a witness of that marriage glory and see Christ put on the glory of his last married bride and his last marriage love on earth when he shall enlarge his love bed and set it up upon the mountains and take in the elder sister, the Jews, and the fullness of the Gentiles. Oh, to see the sight, he wrote, next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful, our elder brethren, the Jews in Christ, fall upon one another's neck and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one, when they, kind to one another when they meet. Oh, day, oh, long for and lovely day dawn. Oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead, thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. One of the Scottish Presbyterians, Andrew Bonar, wrote this in 1889. Israel is the everlasting nation who are to be life from the dead to all nations. And the sure word of prophecy declares, he that scattereth Israel shall gather them. 
I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Yes, I will rejoice over them and will plant them in their own land assuredly with all my heart, with all my soul. All promises from the prophets. Crowned with her fairest hope, the church shall triumph with her Lord, and earth her jubilee shall keep when Israel is restored. First trip I made to India was 1993. I've been there 26 times now. Nancy with me, so she and I, Jewish believers, another friend who is Jewish, and another couple. So five of us, but three of us Jews. And we were out in, to me, what was just a tribal area. I mean, it was more exotic and different than any place I'd ever been. And here a man comes up to me saying, we love the Jews. We have prayed for Israel for many years and celebrate the feast. I'm like, in India? Wow. Towards the end of the trip, we were there for almost a month. Towards the end of the trip, we're going to have lunch at the home of a government worker and his wife, fine Christians. And... They actually had a, a little bit nicer home than the places we had been. I remember we were told they had running water in the home because we had been in some real desolate areas. And he meets me at the door. His wife has not slept all night because she is so excited to be hosting Jews in her home. The man meets me and says, you are the second Jew to come into my home. The first was Jesus Christ. <laughs> 1989, 1989, I'm in Kenya together with Ari Sarkaram, believers lived in Israel for many years, Jewish believer, and Sid Roth. The three of us going there because we wanted to sit under Reinhard Bonnke's ministry and see how God used him. So there we are in, in Mombasa, Kenya. We fly into Nairobi, we get a rental car and drive into, into Mombasa. And I was the designated driver. And it was, you have to remember, it, because of British colonization, they followed the British customs, so you drive on the other side of the road. So the driver's seat is on the other side of the car, and it was a stick shift. So that kind of threw everything, well, whatever. And, and I, I still remember that, that Ari would sit in the front with me, and as I'd be driving and starting to swerve all over the, he said, if I were you, I'd go a little bit more in this direction. And Sid would sit in the back and pray in tongues. That's how we got from place to place. So there we are in Mombasa, Kenya, which is which has a large Muslim population along with Christian. I remember they, they were telling us how to get to the hotel. And they said, you drive to the stoplight and turn. And we literally drew from one end of the town, drove from one end to the other and back, and one end to the other and back, until we found out that the stoplight was a landmark. It wasn't working. The traffic light wasn't working, but it was there standing. And that's where we were supposed to turn. Just trying to pick, give you a picture of the area. A guy comes up to us that week. He's got a backpack. And I remember his name because he was Shadrach. I remember Shadrach with the backpack. And the backpack is filled with cassette tapes. It's packed with cassette tapes. And, and they were from a, a woman, a preacher in America, on why the church is called to pray for Israel and bless Israel. And his mission was to distribute these tapes all over Kenya to get the church in Kenya praying for Israel. And we were the first Jews he ever met, obviously. The first Jews he ever met. 
I was preaching at a, a church in Sweden where the pastor had been so profoundly moved on, a megachurch there, had been so profoundly moved on to help the Jewish people that he bought a giant ship. He literally bought a giant ship so that they could help Jews that were fleeing from the former Soviet Union get to Israel more easily. And, and at the, the wall, the back of the church building, it is composed of six million dots remembering the victims of the Holocaust. There's artwork with six million dots. When I was in Finland, I was sitting with a couple, and the wife had just come back from nine months serving in Israel as a nurse. Nine months away from her husband, nine months away from her home country, serving for free as a nurse in an Israeli hospital. And I said, why would you do that? She goes, well, we love the Jews. Why, why wouldn't you give nine months of your life sacrificially away from your family to serve them? I was staying in one home, and it was a big house. The family had all their kids basically out of the house, and they had all these extra rooms, and they had only built it a few years earlier. And when they were building it, the father had a plan and a vision, but the whole family didn't know it. They were physically working on the house and building it together. And the 16-year-old daughter asked, why are we building such a big house? And the spirit of prophecy came on her, and the answer was, because Jews fleeing from Russia will stay here one day. And they said to me, we want you to know, the bed in which you're sleeping, Jews stay here. The very thing that they had spoken came to pass. You have these experiences, one after another, after another, year in, year out, in different nations. It gets your attention. It makes you realize that God is doing something supernatural in the hearts and minds. And when I've shared in some of these settings the horrible history of anti-Semitism in the church, they're shocked. They've never heard of it. They can't relate to it. They have no idea how such a thing could happen. I remember meeting an Iranian Christian one day. He was in my house repairing something. And we got to talking, and he found out I was a Jewish believer in Jesus. We got to talking about things, and, and somehow the subject of anti-Semitism came up, and he said, you cannot be a Christian and hate the Jew. So my first trip to Korea was 1990. I had been teaching Korean Christians in America starting in the early 80s, and I knew their incredible prayer tradition. Nobody prays like the Koreans. I'm talking about a discipline, a fervor, an intensity. Scott and I were there at a conference one time, and Dr. Che, one of the national leaders, a close friend of Dr. Cho, was hosting the conference. And I was in the car with him one day, and he told me that for decades, he's a major church pastor, national leader on every board you could be on, that for decades, he has led the 6 a.m. prayer meeting at his church for decades. He said, and I also lead early morning prayer at 4.30. The 6 a.m. prayer was the late prayer. The early morning prayer was at 4.30. And he had personally led it for decades. And, and you'd go there. I mean, you, I wasn't there. But you show up for these things, and there's thousands of people praying. Quite extraordinary. And, and I mean praying by the hour, praying with focus, praying with intensity, by the hour. 
I remember in, in, in the height of spiritual intensity in Pensacola at the Brownsville Revival School of Ministry, when we would pray and cry out, I told the students, I said, you have even surpassed the intensity of what I experienced in Korea. The only difference was we could maintain it for about a minute. <laughs> they were going hour after hour after hour after hour. Nobody moving, nobody eyes closed, crying out. I mean, thousands of people, and nobody's eyes open. And everybody crying out and praying. And the way they stop it, because if they don't say anything, nobody stops, is when it's time to have corporate prayer where they agree, bing, they ring a bell. And it's, it's like a truck going 100 miles an hour. It comes to a screeching halt, just like that. And the tears streaming down their eyes, they just get quiet. And then someone leads in prayer, and they agree, and amen. It's, it's intense to be in the midst of. So I go to Korea the first time, 1990. And our flight out of Detroit's delayed. I'm there with my translator. My flight gets delayed. We, and then a 14-hour flight from Detroit to Seoul. And we get in, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty tired. And uh, next morning, they get me up early. Come on, come on. Reverend Brown, come on, come on. We're going to visit Cho's church. I know you wanted to visit. This is our one opportunity. And then you're going to preach in the morning. I said, I thought the meetings start tomorrow. Because they had a very intense schedule set up. They had uh, an all-day seminar for their missions Bible school. And then meetings every night. And then some prayer meetings through the night. And I said, who's speaking at the, at the seminar? They said, Reverend Brown, you are speaking. I said, no, no, I know. But it's meetings all day, all night, every day. I said, who else is speaking? They said, Reverend Brown, you are speaking. <laughs> one of my recent trips over there, one of the sisters who translated for me, she's a pastor, she said, Dr. Brown, you remember this? And she took out, it's a big album, a 26 our series on revival that I taught in one week while there. <laughs> so we get up early in the morning. We visit Cho's church. There's traffic jams everywhere. Go there. I'm blown away by what I see. Go from there. Now I have to preach at a service. Preach at the service. Go back. Now we're going to have a meal together. And, and they said, Reverend Brown, what are you discerning about church in Korea? I said, I'm too tired to discern anything. I said, let me sleep, and then tomorrow I'll start discerning, all right? So we, we go back. We're staying at a nice apartment with a couple on the outskirts of Seoul, all right? And the, the translator keeps trying to wake me up. Dr. Yu, Dr. Brown, come on, come on. We go get dinner now. We go get dinner. I said, let me just sleep a little longer. Comes back an hour later, Dr. Brown, we go get dinner. I said, let me sleep a little longer. Well, it's like 80. He said, Dr. Brown, we must go now. Place is closing. Where do you want to go? I thought, well, you know, I actually saw a sign that said in English. The only English sign I saw, it said pizza. So let's, let's go get pizza. Why not? So we walk over to the place, but it's too late. They're closing. But the guy says to my translator, if you go down this block, turn here, back over here, down there, very hard to find, you'll find another pizza place. So he comes, he says to me, very odd. He said, they normally don't, not so helpful. Very odd, we go there. So we never would have found this place. Walk here, walk here, walk here. There's only two other people in there. We sit down to have our meal, but they're not Korean. I noticed they're not Korean. And I, I said to my translator, just, just be quiet one second. I said, they're speaking Hebrew. They're, they're Israelis. I mean, Korea, not even 24 hours, and I mean, two Israelis, and pizzeria, the outskirts of Seoul. So I said to them in Hebrew, I said, 
Paul, what, what are you doing here? And they said, in Hebrew, oh, clean pizza. We're eating pizzas. Like the typical Israeli answer. <laughs> so I asked, are there many of you here? No, no, many. In Korea, very few. I said, I don't believe this. I said, my translator, have you ever met an Israeli in Korea your entire life? He goes, no. He said, Jew? Yeah, but Israeli? Never. And I surveyed hundreds and hundreds of people while there. They'd never, ever met an Israeli in their country. And right then, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Yes, I've raised up the church in Korea. I've raised them up for the good of Korea. I've raised them up to be a blessing to the nations. But I've also raised them up to pray for the salvation of Israel. At the end of the week, a couple comes up to me, a Korean couple, speaking fluent Hebrew. My biblical Hebrew is strong. My, my spoken Hebrew is not. Their, their spoken Hebrew much better than mine. Fluent Hebrew. Korean couple, they lived in Israel for a while. They have a burden to, to raise up <coughs> prayer for Israel. As a result of my meeting there, a prayer group was raised up. And this prayer group specifically prayed to intercede for Israel. I went back a few months later. It was the fall of 1990 that I went. They were having a special meeting, three and a half days. So after Christmas into the new year, three and a half days, 1,800 people shut up in a giant gymnasium, three and a half days of prayer and fasting. They would worship and pray, preach and pray, sing and pray. That was it. 1,800 people shut up sleeping on the floor, different things. They put me in a tiny apartment, like, I mean, tiny, tiny apartment. And so I fasted and prayed with them, and, and that was it. You preached, you prayed, you worshiped, you prayed, and that was the entire agenda. 1,800 people locked in to start the, the new year. And the last day, the last meeting, I get tremendously burdened to call them to pray for Israel with two very specific burdens. First, for Russian Jews, and then Jews of New York City. And I was living in Maryland at that time, from New York, but overwhelming burden to pray for Jews of New York City. I'm at, so break the fast, have our meal. I'm at the airport, ready to go home. I'm at Kimpo International Airport, flying on Korean air. Virtually every person on the plane is Korean. And who there is, who's standing there on my plane at Kimpo International Airport but an Orthodox Jewish rabbi in Korea? You've got to be kidding me. So go over to talk to him and start sharing the gospel with him. So he's, you know, obviously pushes back and, and uh, he says to me, oh, yeah, you do it your way, easy way. You don't have to keep all the laws and the commandments. You just do it your way. I said, you know, it's not always so easy. I said, I was just with, with 1,800 people, and we just spent three and a half days praying and fasting. I said, you know who we were praying for at the end? We're praying for the Jewish people. I said, by the way, where are you from? And I knew in my heart. I said, where are you from? He goes, New York. I thought, this is, this is wild. Two trips out of two. Trip number three. I'm over there preaching, ministering, getting to the end of the meetings. My translator, same brother's with me. He said, I think I'm going to be going back on Sunday, and someone else will transfer you, transfer, uh, 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 translate for you. Translate. Uh, translate, yeah, translate for me <laughs> on, uh, on Sunday morning. But he was upset the entire trip. The entire trip, he was upset. We stayed at a miserable little place called the Bando Youth Hostel. If you're watching from Korea and you own that place, God bless you. Um, it, it, was, 
It's what it sounded like. It was a youth hostel. You know, it's real simple and just basic. And, and he's like, why we stay here? He said, I am friends. I am friends with the, the owner of the Sheila Hotel, number one hotel in Seoul. President stay, President from America, they stay there. He said, I get 75% off. Why aren't we there? Why are we here? Every day he was upset about it. Well, it's closer to the meetings. Like, it's not that big a difference. I thought, well, whatever. Well, he ten, ends up not leaving on Sunday morning. And early in the morning Sunday, I get a call. Dr. Brown, Dr. Brown, I just met an Israelite on the elevator. I said, Israelite? Moses, Elijah? I said, you mean Israeli? He said, yes, sir. Israeli. I just met Israeli. <laughs> it's three trips out of three now. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. And he thinks he may know you. Actually, he didn't. He had studied with a Dr. Brown at university and thought it could have been the same person. So he gives me his room number. I call the guy. I go see him. I share the gospel, and we talk at length because I still had time before my service that morning. And, and he says to me, could you explain something to me? He said, I work at a very rich company. We're based in Japan and Israel, a very wealthy company. He said, wherever I travel around the world, they put me only in the best hotels. He said, why am I here in the Bando Youth Hostel? And I said, all because of me. <laughs> now, of course, you might have said, well, God, why didn't God put both of you in a nice hotel? <laughs> but this made it all the more striking. I mean, neither of us should have been there. Neither of us should have been there. So I shared the gospel with them, and I told them how much the Christians in Korea love the Jewish people. Remember, when you're a Jew and you travel around the world, you're looking over your back. You're looking, you know, who's looking over your shoulder, looking behind you like, who's going to hurt me? You're not thinking everybody loves us because we're Jews. So I preach that morning. I, I get back to the hotel, and I'm telling the, the people about, yeah, you're not going to believe it. I met another Israeli three trips out of three now. First the Israeli, and then the couple speaking fluent Hebrew, then the Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And, and, now, and now this guy, and he's, he comes walking out right then with his luggage, big smile on his face, big smile. I said, oh, this is the Israeli I met. They go, oh, hallelujah, we love the Jews. We love Israel. He's like, what world is this? And he's all smiles. He said, the CEO of the company came back. He said he made a mistake. I'm not supposed to stay here. He's bringing me to a nice hotel. So he was just there for that morning. Just for that morning. Trip number four. Trip number four. There's one more after this. On this particular trip, our Israeli friend, Ruven Daron, was going to be speaking as well. And Dan Juster, a Messianic Jewish theologian, I was going to be there. So we were joking, and I was saying to my Korean friends, hey, we don't have to have an Israeli show up because we already have an Israeli who's going to be with us, a believer. And they asked me to come a couple days early because they had rented out the Olympic Stadium in Seoul, which seats 70,000 people. And they were having a series of rallies, two speakers a night. So Dr. Cho and someone else, I mean, the, the biggest names in the country, all pastors of churches with hundreds of thousands of people or 50,000 people. And two of them speaking each night, they said, we have one slot, Reverend so-and-so speaking, pastors of the world's largest Methodist church with over 50,000 people. 
and then we want you to bring a message on why the church should pray for Israel and bless Israel in the Olympic Stadium in Seoul. And I remember as I, as I preached, there were, it was rainy and the crowds weren't that big, but still, it was a massive place and great audience. Your face on the 70-foot screen. I just gotten over chicken pox, by the way, so it was an interesting, interesting look. But I, I mean, I, I read from the Hebrew Scriptures. I read from Genesis 12 and the calling to, to bless Israel. I thought, this has never been done. The Hebrew Scriptures have never been read in the Olympic Stadium in Seoul. And then we have the conference, maybe a few hundred people at the conference, an Israel conference, while the church should pray for Israel and understand God's purposes for Israel, similar to this. And the Korean Christians say to me, Dr. Brown, we invited the ambassador from Israel to come. Now, what happened was Israel and South Korea were just starting to establish formal relations. And, and this was 92. They were just starting to establish formal relations, so they, they had just opened an embassy in Korea, and they had not the ambassador yet, but the Charles d'Affaires, the guy who was going to run everything until he came. They said, Dr. Brown, we invited him to come to the meetings. I said, oh, he's not going to come to a church meeting. That's not going to happen. They said, Dr. Brown, we are praying. I said, he's coming. He's coming, because they, they used to invite me. Dr. Brown, can you come for these? I said, no, there's no way. They said, we are praying. I said, okay, I'm going. <laughs> so it's the last night of the conference, and that day we decided we'll all fast. So you got hundreds of people fasting, praying, and we had worked things out. We had worked things out where if he came, that the worship team was going to sing a couple of songs in Hebrew. And that the whole congregation would turn and, and sing towards him together. And one of them, Havena Shalom Alechem, you know, we bring you peace, we bring you greetings. So sure enough, service is going on. And who comes walking in? There he is. Unbelievable. And who greets him at the door but Reuven Daron? So an Israeli Messianic Jew greets him at the door. That's blown away to start. And then he comes up on, comes up on the platform and the worship team turns towards him, and everyone turned, and they begin singing in Hebrew. And I'm talking about faces glowing. They had been fasting and praying. Faces glowing as they sang. And he's, he's actually moved to tears. He looks at Reuben, and he says, this is the most moving, incredible thing I've ever seen. Then I hand him a copy of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, and I had a nice inscription to him in Hebrew at the front of it. And then he gets up to speak, and he's speaking in English, and they're translating to Korean. And he's pretty much saying, look, we're, we're really nice people. Don't believe all the bad stuff you hear about us, not knowing the tremendous love they have and all the good they try to do and so on. So he finishes, and, and, and then the, the organizer of the meeting says, you know, I want you to stay here. And he's going to pray in Korean, and someone's going to translate into English. And this guy, I, I have never in my life before or since heard anyone pray for Israel with such intensity and passion as he did. I mean overwhelming, crying out to God. <laughs> this, this really guy's never seen anything like it. Then he left, and I preached on seven reasons why I know God will save Israel. And I went through scripture, and, and then at the end, I talked about what had happened on my previous trips. And at the end of the service, I called everyone up. I said, let's pray for Israel's salvation. So I joined in, got on my knees. We began to pray. And the presence of God got so thick that we were first of all standing. I couldn't stand. I had to get on my knees. 
And then it was so thick, I couldn't stay on my knees, so I laid flat on my face. I couldn't do anything or move. And that's when I heard God say, I'm going to save Israel. <laughs> this is my work. I'm going to do it. Watch what I do. Trip number five. Right before the trip, Nancy and I had gone to New York to meet with an 18-year-old ultra-Orthodox Jew, one of 10 children, and in his circles, for someone in that family to believe in Jesus would be a, a tragedy beyond any tragedy. They would do everything in their power to pull them back, and if not, they would consider that child dead. That it would be a tragedy beyond anything they could, that would be the ultimate betrayal. And, and he had started to come to faith, God had worked in his life, we had gotten in touch with him through a friend, and now he wanted to tell his family that he was going to move to Maryland to be with us and to go to our school. I cannot tell you what a difficult night that was, and the shock of the father and the endless phone calls to the mother in Israel and the, the brothers, and it, it was unbelievable. And the brother said, listen, listen, if, look, this famous rabbi, 90-year-old famous rabbi in Brooklyn, we want to bring him to meet with him in the morning. And if after he talks to him in the morning, he, he still wants to go with you because he's an expert in this, he can go. We won't keep him. Well, it was, it was a lie, and they kidnapped him. And, you know, the next morning we're there, nothing, can't get in touch with him, nothing. You know, we go to the police, anything we could do. Nah, what can you do, 18 years old, you know. So I go to Korea kind of heartbroken. Right after I go to Korea, and my main messages weren't on Israel, but one day I preached on it in Romans eleven twenty six. 26. So, so this is 1993. And I preach on all Israel shall be saved. And as we're praying at the end, and I'm having them proclaim all Israel shall be saved, all Israel shall be saved. I hear the Lord, let's call this fellow Moshe. Well, this young man, let's call him Moshe, Moses. I hear the Spirit saying to me, Moshe will be saved. Moshe will be saved. Moshe will be saved. He's going to make it. Well, we don't hear from him for a long time. Then finally hear from him again. He wants to make a break. I'm leaving for India. He wants to come. And I'm going to be in India for a month. He comes to Maryland, just runs for it on his own. Now he's in his early 20s. He ends up staying at our house. Nancy spends hours and hours just pouring into him and, and building relationship. And he's, he's going to our classes at our school and so on. Well, his parents sent guys for him, and they kidnapped him second time. This time, he was beaten. He was brought to Israel using a brother's passport because he had hidden his. Brother looked just like him. He was beaten in Israel. He was, you got, you got bad apples in every religion and every faith, unfortunately. And they told him he was sick. He was on drugs. So he was drugged for several years. And if I ever talked to him, his speech was slurred. It was, it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking for Nancy. And then finally, he found out that he was just being drugged. When his mother died, the brother said, you're not sick. They're just keeping you drugged. So he just he turned away from everything. He just didn't want to think about God or religion or anything or Jesus. And back and forth, up and down. This is many years now, many years. And then I wouldn't hear from him at all. And then we'd talk and, and uh, you know, maybe. And he's not, not really that religious anymore. Then he got more orthodox or... And I just I said, man, you're going to, I just held on to that promise because I believe God had spoken to me. Well, last year, it's a long time. Last year, Moshe solidly got right with the Lord. <laughs> yes. 
go send me these texts praising God and thanking Jesus. It's, just, it's utterly remarkable. And that word God gave me in 1993, and we're talking 26 years later, Moshe will be saved. 26 years, 93 to 2019, right? 1126, yeah. But it was 25 years when it happened, so that's, that still works. Israel shall be saved. There's going to be a national turning. Religious rabbis are going to have epiphanies and, and recognize Yeshua. Not, they're, they're, listen, they're not going to shave their beards and buy Christmas trees, okay? That's not the goal. The goal is they're going to recognize Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah of Israel. I'd be a fool. Look, it's written in the word, but I'd be a fool not to believe it with what I've seen and heard. And the signs just from Korea alone, and, and I've, I've had other experiences in other countries, but I shared some of the most outstanding with you. This is not going to happen in a vacuum. It's going to happen through the prayers of God's people. It's, it's going to happen through the travail of God's people. It's going to happen as there is a solid Jewish believing witness in the land, as there is an outpouring of signs and wonders, as a church that loves Israel is raised up full of the Spirit, and as intense pressures come from the outside, I believe all those things coming together will bring this about. And we will see a miracle like no other miracle. And, and with that, the ushering in of the return of the Lord. And with that, the resurrection of the dead. And with that, the kingdom of God established on the earth. I mean, these are big, big pictures. You can debate the exact sequence of what is what, but what is for sure is that this is the last great domino that falls. And with this domino, when it falls, death is demolished. The last enemy, death, is destroyed. The kingdom of God established. One illustration, and we'll be done. I've used some stereotypes here. But I picture that in the, the streets of glory, the New Jerusalem one day, there's a conversation between a big Texan and a little Jewish guy. And a Texan's cowboy, so he's got, still in heaven, he's got big cowboy hat and cowboy boots and a little Jewish guy with his glasses. And the cowboy evangelist says, brother, what's your name? My name is Baruch. Barry, you can call me, but Baruch. You know who I am? No, I don't, but you seem like a really important person. My name is Evangelist Smith. I preach to over one million people in my lifetime. That's really amazing, Evangelist Smith. I've seen 100,000 people saved. One service, I saw four people get out of their wheelchairs. What you done, son? Well, I, I didn't really do much. I was involved in Jewish ministry. And we were just like in Jerusalem praying for the Jewish people to be saved. And as a result of our prayers, Jesus came back and millions of people got out of their graves. <laughs> That's what we're talking about, friends. I love the reports of the sick being healed and people said free. But That's what we're talking about. Life from the dead, 
the return of the Messiah, the salvation of Israel. So I want you to stand to your feet together with me. Thank you, Lord. And I want you to all come up together. Thank you, Father. Brother Corey will depend on you to play the exact right song for the moment. <laughs> I want you to all come up front. I want you to all come up front. And, and we are, as our brother just begins to play whatever's on his heart, we are going to start to raise our voice in a cry for the salvation of Israel. Now, now listen, if you feel nothing, if there's no emotion with it or behind it, that's perfectly fine. You just pray. If you feel gripped, go with the burden. You're among friends here, and, and this is a place where any genuine burden from the Lord can be expressed. So again, if, if you just have a cry from your heart, let it rise. If you just want to pray quietly and intellectually and meditate on things, however you do it. But if something rises within you and grips you, just let it out. Let it out. If there's a cry from depths of your heart for the salvation of Israel, let it out because right now Israel is not saved. Right now, some of the greatest opposition I get to preaching the gospel comes from Jewish rabbis. Right now, Jesus is still considered a, a curse word in Jewish homes. Your prayers are going to make a difference. And I believe even right here in Lakeland, as a result of your prayers, Jewish people will come to faith. Maybe even right here in this building. But you'll hear about it. Jewish people came to faith. Of course, this happens all the time. But I'm saying it's going to happen here specifically in response to prayer. So, Father, we lift our voice to you. We lift our voice to you, Father, for the salvation of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, God, save your ancient people. Oh, God, lift the veil from rabbis, from counter-missionaries, from secular Jews, from atheist Jews, from Jews caught up in Hinduism and other religion. Open hearts, open minds. Moms with 12 kids. Dads studying Talmud all day. Open hearts and minds. May they discover Jesus, Yeshua, right in the middle of their faith. May the eyes of their understanding be open. All Israel shall be saved. All Israel shall be saved. God, hear the cry of your people. Save your people, Israel. We intercede. We intercede. Those who have been grafted in, intercede. Go ahead and pray however you feel burdened. Cry out to God. <laughs>